This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Entries are now open for the 2021 English Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the English Bloodstock team. Despite the fact that he'd been riding regular winners and fulfilling track work duties right throughout 2020, James Winks had known for some time his health was far from perfect. In mid-July, he booked himself into hospital for extensive testing and was shocked when doctors diagnosed syncope, a condition that can bring on fainting or blacking out as a result of inadequate blood flow to the brain. The onset of syncope can be exacerbated by physical stress, by dehydration, by heavy sweating or by exhaustion, the problems that jockeys face every day of the week. James is just 36 and was on the brink of his best years as a professional rider, and obviously he was shattered when doctors explained that he'd be endangering his own life and the lives of others should he continue. After a long talk with his wife Laura, James decided to put his own health and the future of his family ahead of his rewarding but very hazardous career. On his final day of riding at Wodonga, James had five rides for one winner and a second, and that winner was Langworthy for one of his great supporters, Mike Maroney. In just under 20 years of riding, James Winks had won over 800 races, including five Group 1s, four at home and one in Hong Kong. You've only got to look at the astute trainers who were constantly chasing his services to see that this man's talents were very widely recognised in the Victorian racing industry. Let's find out how he's feeling two months after making his life-changing decision. Great to catch up, James. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Johnny. Much appreciated, mate. Are you eating three meals a day yet or still on a jockey's diet? No, no. I quickly got into that habit of eating three meals a day, mate, for sure. (laughs) Took about three days, did it? It did, it did. I've probably got about six meals in there a couple of times in a couple of days. <laughs> Good on you. Now, James, you'd obviously been feeling off for quite some time. What were the danger signs? What were the symptoms? Oh, the, with a syncope, Johnny, there's actually really no symptom. There was, you know, obviously you, everybody and every jockey or the majority of jockeys, you know, go through a, a sweating regime, but... I was just going through the system of getting up to go to track work on a Tuesday morning and I, and I uh, lost consciousness and mm. um, next thing I knew I was in the back of an ambulance on the way to the hospital and spent two days in there and they did um, some pretty uh, deep extensive tests and, yeah, I was diagnosed with a syncope. Mm. Now, that word isn't widely used. 
must have sounded very foreign to you when you first heard it. Yeah, it was, it was. And obviously after, you know, you do your Googling and all those kinds of things and the doctors tell you what they need to tell you, um, it was obviously related and back to the triggers that I set off uh, through being a jockey and it was part of my trade and something that I was hoping to do for another five or ten years. But mm. unfortunately the sweating that I did and, you know, the regime I went through and the weight loss that I had to do, which a lot of jockeys do, mm. um, they were the triggers that, set off the syncope and if I continue to do that I'll definitely have another one and I might be as lucky this time. No. As tough as it was, the decision was inevitable. You and Laura have three great kids, two boys, Cooper who's seven, Zane who's five and your little girl Annabella who's three and they want to have dad around for a long time yet. Yeah, that's right. So I suppose when any any sort of athlete, when you want to achieve the, the heights and the greats of how high you can go in any sport, you have to have a little bit of selfishness about you to achieve them. And I just felt it was time, you know, I've been fortunate enough. My wife's followed me all around the world and we've got, like you said, we've got three beautiful kids now. So I had to take that selfishness out of it. And, you know, we elected for me to give riding away, which is a tough decision, but I think it's the right one. Mm. Oh, there's no doubt about it, James. And uh, everybody's on side and everybody respects the courage that it took to make that decision. Yeah, well, look, like I said, it was just something that I had to put my family first and I always put my family first and, you know, it's the decision we've made. I've accepted it now and I'm just looking for the looking for the next chapter in my life and hopefully it's as good as the one I was when I was a jockey. Well, Radio RSN 927 have quickly uh, sought your services on radio. You worked yesterday from the big core field meeting. In fact, you've been involved with them for the last two or three weeks. What are you doing? Yeah, I'm just giving them a bit of a rundown of a jockey's perspective of how races might be run and just insights that people, you know, probably aren't aware of, sort of explaining the run to the first corner from the barriers and what goes on and what's going through jockey's mind. So it's just more of keeping it real and telling them what I know and all the knowledge that I've known and, yeah, just giving an insight on how a jockey would ride a race. So it's been great fun at the moment. Well, that's only the start because we hear you've already been signed up by the 10 Network to join their commentary team over the four days of the Melbourne Cup Carnival. Have they told you what you'll be doing over those four days? Uh, Not at this stage, John. Uh, I'm meant to believe one of the roles will be me being behind the barriers and, again, that will come down to me giving uh, the audience at home what I think a jockey will be going through at this time behind the barriers. Mm. Um, a lot of how what they're thinking, how they would be preparing to go into the barriers and just things that just come naturally to me. Obviously, I did it over a 20-year period and just sort of things that will come natural and that's what the home viewer wants. Early in your life, you were far more interested in playing football than you were about becoming a jockey. You showed great promise, I'm told, in the junior ranks, but those big kids were starting to knock you around a bit. Yeah, I love footy and I still love it now. I have, love having a kick with my little fella Zane. He loves football. And, yeah, it's just something that I really, really enjoyed and strived on when I was little and I was shattered when I was told I was going to be too small. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, look, you know, that's another part of your life that you have to accept and I, I ended up rolling into being a jockey and ended up being all right at that as well. And a pretty good one. Now, James, let's begin with a look at the dynasty from which you descend. You're a fourth-generation jockey. Your great-grandfather rode in the 1920s with some success 
and you're his namesake. He was James Winks. Yeah, that's correct. Fourth generation. So it's me, my father, my grandfather, and my great grandfather. So I suppose you could say I was always going to be a jockey, but like I said, I, I never thought I was going to be and didn't throw my leg over a horse till I was 15. So mm. to say my pop had a grin from ear to ear would be an understatement. He was wrapped when I rolled down there one day, and I'm not going to lie, it was only rolled down there because I hated school. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was the next thing, and he. He said, I'm a natural, and he was wrapped and took me under his wing and taught me everything I know now. Yeah, and you're talking about Mick Winks, your late grandfather, who rode successfully himself and later made his mark as a trainer. And he was one of the lucky ones, James, in getting a once-in-a-lifetime horse, a great little horse in the mid-1990s. Yeah, he was fortunate to get a horse called Brawny Spirit. Um, don't worry, he had to do the hard yards before that. He, he you know, he, he struggled a hell of a lot, and he was fortunate enough that Brawny Spirit did come along and helped him a lot in his career. Um, he's sadly no well, no longer with us, Mickey. But um, like I said, he was a great, great part of my career. Um, I'll never forget the days. You know, I'd be riding gallops with me, and he'd be on the lead pony, and, and he'd always have hold of me by the bridle and. Yeah. He'd tell me, are you right, boy? Are you right? And I was sitting there like a little church monkey saying, yeah, Pop, I'm right, I'm right. Let me go, let me go. And the horses would take off. So they're yeah. memories that you'll never forget, you know. So, no, uh, right. no it was great. And like I said, he's, he taught me everything I know, all the basics of everything I know. Just before we leave that little horse, Brawny Spirit, he only raced 27 times. He won eight of them. He was placed in seven. He won more than a million dollars, just over the million-dollar mark. He won two Group 1s, a Salinger and a new market. Michael Clark rode him in both of those wins. He raced at stakes level in Sydney. He ran second in the Galaxy on one occasion. You'd have been about 10 or 11 then, James, but you'd remember him well. Yeah, I remember the horse. Like I said, it wasn't until I got into horses at 15 that I threw my leg over one, but I remember going to the stables. He was the pride and joy, that, that little horse, and, you know, he'd always he was a bit of a character. He'd walk over the box and he'd stick his tongue out and he'd allow you to grab it and you could flick it and all them kind of things. So he was definitely a character. But just one that I was just wrapped that my pop was able to horse today. He was able to get his hands on because he worked so hard, even from his younger years, you know, just to provide for his family. He was a milkman and worked hard and struggled a bit through his training careers and to get a horse like him, he thought he deserved it. So it was really good. Well, you started off with Grandpa, but a little later on, uh, seeking more experience, you got a transfer to New South Wales to the stables of the late, great Max Lees at Newcastle where you spent a very valuable four months. It was around the time Max fell ill. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I went up there and I ended up staying four months for Maxie and I uh, got a little bit homesick and decided to come home. But um, it was four months of my career that, you know, it was a great experience, especially going around the other way. You know, I remember, the, the, you know, I had the greats riding then. Your Beeman, your Chrissy Monsters was there. I become good mates with Corey Brown and he took me under his wing a little bit. But uh, as you said, Maxie fell ill and, you know, Chris sort of took over from there and he, he guided me along the way. But I'll never forget Cameron Swan. Um, said to me one day, I've never seen Maxie give an apprentice a go like he's given you, so he obviously thought I could sit on a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And young Chris, of course, was getting ready to take over from his dad and none of us would have imagined the uh, dizzy heights that Chris has been able to reach. 
Yeah, unbelievable. Um, you know, he's just got from going from strength to strength. I remember when I was there, he had the old warrior in County Tyrone. He was the pin-up horse, and I was fortunate enough to give him a little bit of a bowl around every now and again. But the heights that Chris has reached, you know, to this day is unbelievable. He's only going to get stronger with the support he's got. So I wish him all the best. So you went back to Melbourne and linked up again with your grandfather. Yeah, I did. Come back with Pop, and then uh, didn't have much longer, and then I've come out of my time. Now, your dad, Wayne Winks, was a third-generation jockey, had his share of talent. He rode many winners in the city. Uh, what did he do when his riding days were over, James? Yeah, he was very good in the saddle, my dad. Um, he struggled with his weight as well, but um, when he left riding, he was another one who had to work hard to provide for the family, and he just went back to being a security guard at the Flemington race course, so he never really left his, his point post and um, mm. stayed on the ground. And, yeah, he just continued to work hard. When I was starting out, he drove me all over Victoria, so I was very appreciative of that. Mm. You have one sister who has the beautiful name of Celeste, and she has absolutely no interest in racing. I believe she's a personal trainer. Yeah, she is. Um, obviously, she was a great supporter of mine when I was riding and uh, she attended a lot of race meetings that I did did ride at, but she, yeah, not one to sort of go if I wasn't there, but great supporter was someone that I've always called upon if I'm feeling a little bit flattened down and just a great, great person to talk to. And, yeah, she's my sister, so that's what we're there for. And, yeah, I love her to death. The Winks name is prolific in Victorian racing. And not surprisingly, it was your uncle, Peter Winks, who trained your very first winner. I think it was at Bendigo. It was, and I'll never forget that day. It was called Norley Gold, a little chestnut with a white face. Uh, the whole family was there. Yeah, it was a special day, and to ride it for my uncle was even more special. So, um, yeah, just a day that you never forget. you never forget your first winner. Now, James, what is it about that racetrack at Bendigo? It remains your favourite track to this day. You love the place. Yeah, I do. Obviously, I rode my first winner there, but it's just a lovely circumference. Um, obviously, Flemington's a pinnacle um, for a Melbourne jockey. Probably, the, you know, the similar traits of what Ramwick's got for the Sydney boys. But, yeah, Bendigo is just a great provincial track that a lot of great horses have kicked off their career there due to the fact that it's just a great circumference. Every horse gets their chance and it just suits the way I like to ride, which was patience and you can present them late and mm. just a beautiful big open track with a 400-metre running. Most kids ride older seasoned horses early in their careers, but your first city winner was on a filly called Galatea and, James, it was a two-year-old race at Sandown for Rick Hoare Lacey. So you must have been a pretty level-headed kid. Yeah, I remember I drove Rick insane too to ride her. I was doing my rides by myself then and I drove him insane. But Rick was very, very good to me when I was young. Mm. I rode a lot of his good horses. I remember I rode Dash for Cash. I went on him one day. He, he took off on me at Sandown. He won by about 10 lengths. He went on to win a number of Group 1s. So he was very, very good to me. But, yeah, Galatea, a little chestnut mare. She was bomb-proof. Made me look good. Jumped straight on the bunny and kept running. And, yeah, she was my first one. So it was very good. Three of your five Group 1 winners were trained by Danny O'Brien, with whom you've had a tremendous association. You work well together. 
Yeah, we did. We worked well. Um, it was something that just clicked. You know, it, it was like we just knew what 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 each other needed to do to achieve. Um, wrote a stack of winners for him, and I believe I'm still the the jockey that leads the race to ride as many winners for him. Uh, I've got well over. Well, I might be nearly close to 200 or whatever. He's not quite sure, but he's provided me with three Group Ones. He provided me with my first Group One, and that's a day you'll never forget. That was the Winter Stakes. In Brisbane on absolute glam, and yeah, then I ended up winning a Coolmore for him and a Yellumba. So he's been a great part of my career, and very thankful for him for that. You had three rides on Star Witness for Danny O'Brien. You ran fourth in a Scalacci, second in a Patanak Farm. That's a Group One, and you won the race you just mentioned, the Group One Coolmore Stud Stakes which is rapidly emerging as one of the most important Group 1 races in Australia. It's a stallion maker. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, John. It's a stallion making race. And so there was a lot of pressure on that day, but one that I thrived on. I was probably the most confident I've ever been going into a Group 1. Uh, I did a lot of work with him. He was, I won't say he was a hot-headed horse, but he was. He was, didn't take much for stirring up. And I ended up building a great relationship with him and bonded with him well. Uh, I never forget the days you'd get on him in the mountain yard. His neck would just swell up and he was just ready to go. And like yeah. I said, it was one of the days I was just so confident going into a Coolmore. And, yeah, we got the job done, so it was a very good day. The day you ran second on Star Witness uh, in the Patanak Farm Stakes, the Group 1, you got a very good, a very uninterrupted look at Black Caviar's bum. <laughs> I think everyone did over the, that period of when she was racing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll never forget, like, my horse gave everything that, that day and she broke his heart, to be honest. Like, yeah. I travelled up alongside her. Young Benny Mallon was on her at the time. Mm. And, um, yeah, I travelled up and I honestly thought I had her and then he shook the reins at her and probably made an error, Johnny. I should have grabbed her tail at the same time <laughs> and went with her, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, he tried, but she ended up giving him a bit of a touch-up. I think she beat him by four lengths and, yeah, well, you know what she ended up rising to do. She's one mm. of the greats of the turf. She had a retro rocket. <laughs> yeah, she was something special, something special. The O'Brien-trained Douro Valley was one of your favourites. You only won twice on him, but one of them was the Yalumba, as you said, Group 1. And go back to that race, James. You regard this as possibly your best ever winning ride? Yeah, I just took the race by the scruff of the neck. Juro Valley, yeah, he was just a great horse to me. You know, I won a group one on him, the Yolumba that you've said. And I remember when we got in the mountain yard, he had the luxury of already being in the Caulfield Cup that year. I rode him in the Caulfield Cup the year before and he ran second. Mm. And he had the luxury of already being in it the next year. So Danny was able to pick a path and one of the paths was to run in the Yolumba and I remember Danny said, we need the horse to have a gallop today. You know, we can't just be floating around. Mm. And, um, yeah, so we jumped out. I sort of parked outside the leader, but they just were, they were just going too slow. So I think it might have been Danny Barrett on casual pass was up front and I whipped around him at the half mile down the hill there and got me revs up and kept him rolling and took him off the bit and they couldn't catch us. We were 50 to 1 that day. Mm. And Danny O'Brien summed it up in a, a, a quite a unique way when you came back in. <laughs> what did he say to you? <laughs> yeah, that was a ballsy ride, James. Very ballsy <laughs> ride. <laughs> yeah, unusual choice of words for a horse trader. Yeah, yeah, no, but it, yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, I believe it's 
probably the best ride I've ever given in my career at that level, you know, at a group yeah. one level. Now, Duro Valley was special, as you said. He was the first of your four rides in the Melbourne Cup. No result, but a massive thrill just to be in it. Oh, yeah, it's an experience that you can only imagine and it's hard to explain unless you've actually participated in the race from the crowds and the build-up and all those kind of things. But he was a special horse to me. He gave me a lot of firsts. He, my first Melbourne Group 1 winner, my first Caulfield Cup ride, my first Melbourne Cup ride. So he was a special horse. And, yeah, to get into a Melbourne Cup with him and then continue to go on and ride in, in four was yeah, a good achievement. Now, which one of your three kids has got a very impressive set of lungs. Oh, they've all got an impressive set of lungs. Don't worry about that. But um, <laughs> I just heard oh, one little... cutting loose. Yeah, oh, I've got three of them, mate. They're doing a good job. So he's telling me to hurry up, but he understands. He wants to go kick the footy and all that kind of stuff. But mum's just rolled home now with, with fresh coffee, so they'll be quiet for another half hour anyway. She'll take over. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> now, 2008... You had another Melbourne Cup ride for Danny O'Brien on a horse called Gallopin, who was going very well at the time. You'd won the Mooney Valley Cup on him. And then in the Melbourne Cup, you were following the eventual winner, Viewed, at the 1,000 metres mark when your horse's breathing suddenly changed and you had to pull him up. Yeah, I believe that's probably the one that got away, uh, John. Uh, yeah, it just happened. It was freaky. So I'd Drew out wide. By the time I got out of the state the first time, I was midfield or a little bit worse. I had the winner in front of me and Bauer, I think it was, behind me. And it was just everything. It was just a dream, the horse. He was such a probably very underrated galloper. He could win anything from a half-mile trial on wet or dry and then ended up running in a 3,200-metre race. So I just spoke of his talent. But, yeah, unfortunately, at the 1,000 there, I just knew something wasn't right and I had to pull him up and he ended up having a throat infection and never raced again. But... Oh it was probably the race that got away and it happened happened in a Melbourne Cup of all races. Now, 2010, and Bart Cummings had told you you could ride faint perfume in the Melbourne Cup, but then they decided not to run her at the two miles. So Bart switched you to precedence and you rode that old boy in the first of his four Melbourne Cup appearances. You finished eighth. Yeah, that's right. So, you, 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 again, you summed it up perfect. I was on fake perfume, but she didn't perform as well as we'd like in the McKinnon. I actually was sitting in the jockey's room, and that was the year Blake Shin had a fall and he broke his leg, and obviously I was a recipient of uh, getting on precedence. Mm. Um, I remember it was pouring rain that year, um, and he was a bit of a tricky bugger to ride. He used to get up on the steel and reef and tear, but we ended up feeling – Eighth spot, I think it was, and collected prize money again. So it was just great to have a ride for Bart that year. I, I remember Darto was there. I think I think might have been – I think So You Think running it that year, and he ran third. So Darto was there, and it was just a great vibe to have everyone there, and old Bart was there. Yeah, that was Americanes year, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep, mm. yep. Now, your final Melbourne Cup ride was as recently as last year when you rode the German-bred horse Sound for Mike Moroni. Now, he finished midfield, but do you know you were only four lengths behind the winner, Vow and Declare? He ran a good race. He did, he did. He's a horse that was good to me towards my end of the career as well. I rode him in a Caulfield Cup and a Melbourne Cup, and then we ran second in the Auckland Cup. And 
Uh, yeah, he only got beat for four lengths. Uh, give me a torrid ride that year, last year, sorry. Like, he was another one that could take a hold, and they went pedestrian speed. Yeah. We all thought with the internationals coming over, they would sort of roll along like they did at home, but they went at pedestrian speed up the back straight there. I remember I kicked heels on him and Nelly fell once. Mm. And um, so it was an eventful one and one that I remember. But we actually picked through him good. And yeah, he ran, I think he ran about 11th or something. And again, he collected prize money for the owner. So it was happy days. Mm. A, a quick little trip to Auckland to run second in the cup would have been a nice a little adventure. It was, it was. It was actually, I loomed up to win that day. Um, it was just one of them two mile races that just panned out perfect. I ended up lobbing three back defence, and everywhere I wanted him to go, he just manoeuvred for me because, like I said, he was quite aggressive, but he manoeuvred into every spot and mm. we presented well. If it couldn't run down to the 100 to 1 winner, it just kept running, and obviously he runs second, but yeah, he was a try of the horse, and mm. he'll probably run in it again this year or go head down that path anyway. Just get you to stand by for a moment, James, while we clear a commitment on the podcast. Back shortly. In the three editions of the Everest so far, only two runners have had strong Adelaide ties. Fedora, who contested the race in 2018, and Sunlight last year had spent a part of their careers in South Australia. This year, it's fair to say that Gitra and Behemoth, both five-year-olds, are as South Australian as the Barossa Valley. Gitar will run in the English slot, Behemoth under the star banner. Gitra, trained by Port Lincoln-born Gordon Richards, has spent most of his career across the road from the Morfordville Racecourse. Behemoth has enjoyed the idyllic surrounds of beautiful Goolwa Beach in the hands of David Jolly, a member of a legendary South Australian racing family. The athletic chestnut Gitra has won a Group 1 and been placed in three others. The Giant Bay Behemoth has won two Group 1s and been placed in another. If one of them happens to win the Tab Everest on October the 17th, South Aussies will have bragging rights for a long time to come. Another Group 1 winner was Magicool for Mark Kavanagh in the time-honoured Queensland Derby in 2015. Any Derby, anywhere is a nice one to win. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? A derby. You've won a derby. It just sounds good. I went so close in the Victorian derby one year, so to win a Queensland derby on a horse called Magic Cool. Yeah, it was definitely something in, in another state. So, yep, I've ticked off the derby box. Not not the biggest one, but definitely a derby box. You've already mentioned Absolute Glam's name. You had a few rides on her for Danny O'Brien for one group one, the Winter Stakes in Brisbane, in 2008, and then a few months later, you went very close to another Group 1 on that mare when you were beaten a nose by Typhoon Z in the Manicado Stakes. Yeah, she was obviously special place in my heart. It provided me with my first Group 1 in uh, Brisbane. Uh, she was, gee, she was a good horse, very good horse. I probably, we probably didn't see the best of her. Mm. Um, yeah, she won the winner stakes and then got beat a pimple to Typhoon Trey. Oh, who did you say Zed. Typhoon? Someone, Typhoon Zed, that's right. Yeah. She was very unlucky that day. She got mended back three back the fence at the valley in steam. So mm. might have been one that got away. Now, your fifth group one popped up in Hong Kong during a short stint you had there. Uh, the race was called the Chairman's Prize Sprint. In 2009, the horse was dim sum and the trainer was John Moore, who's on his way home to Australia. 
Yeah, John Moore, I was fortunate enough. I sort of rode shotgun to Darren Beeb and the great man was there as retainer rider for John Moore at the time. And um, obviously he had first call on the horses and I was riding a horse called River Jordan in the lead-ups to the races and he was running extremely well. And um, Dazzler took that ride and I ended up getting thrown onto the 50-1 to pot, which was dim sum, but yeah. it ended up loving it and working out amazingly well. And we beat a horse called Sacred Kingdom home that day and he was the pin-up horse. Uh, probably known as the best sprinter in the world, but to ride a Group One winner in Hong Kong was a great achievement, and to do it on a fifty to one pot was even better. You rode quite a number of winners over there, but you became disillusioned when your weight became a little erratic at one stage, and the opportunities just didn't warrant your killing yourself in the sweat box. So you applied for and gained a release from the Hong Kong Jockey Club contract, and. On your very last day there, you rode a winner for Paul O'Sullivan, a horse called Spectacular Award. Yeah, that's correct. I'm not going to lie. The Hong Kong bubble got to me, um, just mentally and physically. Uh, I obviously did well enough to present and ride a Group 1 winner, but it's a funny setup over there where how everything is so organised for so many weeks in advance where rides have you know, taken up to three weeks in a row and I struggled to get a bit of a roll on. Mm. Uh, yeah, and it got the better of me. So, yeah, we pulled the pin on it, come home. But I was fortunate enough the last day that I rode there, my mum and dad were there and to bang a winner in, in front of them was it was great. So um, we got we got another one on the last day, so it was very good. You had a good time in Malaysia and Singapore where you rode a number of winners for Laurie Laxon and for Steve Burridge. But Singapore was special for a far more important reason. This is where you met Laura, who was a veterinary nurse, but she was also writing track work, you tell me, for Larry Lapson. Yeah, she was. Obviously, we, I met my wife there and, um, yeah, we've got three lovely kids now. I'm not sure if you can hear them in the background. They're still yahooing in the background. <laughs> I can hear one of them. <laughs> yeah, they're still yahooing and running around. But, yeah, I was, you know, obviously landed on my feet meeting Laura and, She's, um, you know, surrendered us a, a lot herself in the sense of she was very good at her job and she followed a few of them horses with Laurie to Dubai and mm. she followed me around the world and obviously seven years ago she gave up riding to become a mum. So I'm very, very grateful for that and very grateful to have her by my side and she's my rock. So it was a very, very happy hunting ground, Singapore, and a time in my life for two years it was right up with the best of the years I've had in my life. Good to hear. Laura was expecting uh, your third child when you signed for a short stint in Mauritius where you rode some 23 winners, but you tell me you had a terrific time in Mauritius. You loved it. Yeah, it's probably out of the six countries I've ridden in, it's the most fun. Oh, Singapore, Singapore and Mauritius are probably on par, but Mauritius I was just a lot more hands-on and I, I learned a hell of a lot. I, you know, a lot more of an appreciation of what trainers have got to go through just to get a horse to the races. And I say that, like I said, because I was hands-on. I've seen, you know, anything from the smallest cut could get infected to horses not eating and just all the little things that have to add up, all the little dots that have to add up just to get a horse to the races. And I, I just really, really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, it made the wins even more special when you won because of all the work that you did have to put in. So it was really good and I loved it. Great little island, lovely place to live and just, yeah, really, really enjoyed my time there. And plenty of time off, isn't there, James? Only race uh, Saturday? 
Yeah, that's another reason. I love to travel and it was for them reasons. Like when you do go to your Hong Kong, your Singapore's and your Mauritius and Malaysia's, they only race on weekends or in Mauritius' case, it was only on a Saturday. So in saying that, I had a great routine. I rode work Mondays, Tuesdays, every Wednesday you'd have off and then sort of Thursday, Friday you'd ride work and then Saturday races. So it was a great routine. So the weeks didn't feel like they went as long and it was just, yeah, it was just something that I thoroughly enjoyed and I, you know, I would have loved to, if I had have continued to ride for another five or ten years, it's definitely a place that I would have ended up in again for sure. Yeah. And what was the weight scale? Were you comfortable That's another, even though you had yeah. days off? No, it was great, Happy. Uh, like I could walk around 61, 62 and know that I only had to ride 57 on the Saturday and because you've got all week to sort of take it off gradually, it was just something that, like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed. You could enjoy yourself after you had a win. You could have a dinner. You could have a few beers and just enjoy it. So it was really, really good, whereas in Australia it's very demanding and, you know, you you can't enjoy things as much as you would like when when you're here as much as you could overseas. Yeah, and are you a golfer? They tell me the jockeys play a lot of golf in Mauritius. Yeah, no, I'm not a golfer. And when I do play, I cheat. So I just kick the ball along and <laughs> more of a car driver and have a, have a bit of a beer. But yeah. uh, I, don't, I don't mind just going every now and again, but definitely not something that I, I, I really enjoy. But mm. uh, was just more I'm – a, I'm a beach man. I love the beach there, Mauritius, and the beaches in there is – some of the beaches that I've seen over there are nearly the best in the world. Mm. You, you had the odd dunk in the Indian Ocean. 100%. I was in there every day. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was just, just a great place, great place. Just thought of a handful of nice little races you won. You rode a very good sprinter for Bart by the name of Swick, who was a million-dollar earner. You won a challenger on him, but sadly it was then only a group two. Yeah, he's probably one of the fastest horses I've ridden for a, sh- for a burst over a short period of time. I'll never forget that day. I thought Bart was jam- Bart was jamming up when he said to me, "Boy, just sit on him to the to the clock tower." And I'm thinking to myself, "I'm sure that clock tower is only 150 meters out from the winning post." <laughs> but sure enough, I was getting held up on him anyway, and the horse took a gap, needle eye gap, and exploded. He went that quick, I nearly fell off the back of him. But Good it was my it was my first winner on Derby Day, and probably my first big success in the big smoke. Mm. And, you know, one that a lot of trainers sort of got onto and from there I sort of started to ride for the Freedmans and all the big names back then. Mm. I'll have to check the records in case I'm wrong here, but I think Swick won his maiden at Kembla Grange. Uh, it was a very ordinary race, but it was a hell of a win. He, he just flew down the outside, went past 12 or 14 horses in three strides. I'm sure it was Swick at Kembla. Yeah, I'm not quite sure, but uh, he, I know I know one thing. He had a motor, and mm. Stevie Arnold actually had a great association with Bard at the time, and he rode him a few times, and I actually won on him, but Stevie won, uh, rode him. I think it might have been the old Patnack now because he had that relationship with him was already booked, but mm. um, just one of them great jockeys, and I built a great relationship. He actually rode with me in Mauritius, so it was, it was good. Do you recall winning the Tullock Stakes at Rose Hill, a Group 2, for Bart Cummings on a horse called Book of Kells? I do, I do. I do. Rose Hill, and I remember me and Mark Zara running late. It was raining. I had never ridden at Rose Hill before, and I always sort of thought, oh, I've got to walk these tracks, but because I was running late, I didn't have the time to do it. <laughs> sure enough, Tappy, around we went and we got the chocolate, so it was all a bit of a myth about having to walk them tracks. <laughs> Now, you rode that same horse, James, in 
The AJC Derby won by Jeff Lloyd on Nom de Jour. You finished a long way back, but it was a very heavy track. In fact, it was a wet autumn that year. Yeah, it was, it was. But I was just so fortunate that Bart just had faith in me and he just proceeded to give me opportunities. I actually went up there, might have been for a little month and had a little bit of a stint, not specifically for him, but he gave me great support. And actually, it might have been during a carnival where I just thought I would establish myself there for a, a month, a period. And yeah, he kept providing me with opportunities. And like I said, Melbourne Cups, AJC Darby's, you know, it was, he was just a great supporter of mine. And obviously, to do what he did in his career and to ride for him was, you know, just a great thrill. Absolutely. Now, we mentioned earlier that you won the Challenger when it was a Group 2. It's now a Group 1. Here's another one that had a reclassification after your day. The Sapphire Stakes at Randwick was a Group 2 when you won it on a mare called Belong to Many. Did Barbara Joseph train that one? She did. She did. It was one of Shelley Hancock's syndicates, so there was a million owners in it. I'll never forget a little chestnut mare jumped straight on the bunny and we were in front for a hell of a long time up that Randwick Strait and we were fortunate enough to hold on. So that was another great thrill. I think that was a period of time where I just I thought I'd set myself up for a month. So it was a great little period. And, yeah, I rode a, I rode a number of big, big feature winners, so I was very good. Now, apart from the media involvement uh, that you're heading towards, you've also commenced your role as a jockey coach and you closely observe the progress of three young blokes who value your input. You've got a mentoring arrangement already with Regan Bayliss, who's now in Sydney, with Ben Allen and Jordan Childs. I think you signed Jordan up only a few days ago. Yeah, correct, and it's something that I'm thoroughly enjoying. I, I actually get a big thrill out of the boys, you know, riding a winner or we listen to little things that we need to tweak in their riding and... Um, don't need to say it now, but, you know, these three boys have got great talents and if I can help them tweak their riding to make them achieve or reach the heights that I was fortunate enough into my career, I reckon I'll take as much uh, joy out of that as I did when I was riding, but something that I'm thoroughly enjoying and just I enjoy just helping people, so it's been good. Looking back on 20 years of race riding, as far as injury is concerned, been one of the lucky ones? Yeah, very lucky, very lucky. Uh, I believe I've only cracked a thumb. That's the only broken bone I've had. Good. Um, don't get me wrong. I've had I've had my heavy falls that have looked bad, but I remember having fell a fall at Flemington one day, and I had lacerations to my spleen and liver and a, and a, a euthyorax. But never, never. I was so lucky not to break a bone or have any head injuries. It's quite amazing. So, <laughs> luck or skill, you might call it. But yeah, very, very fortunate enough. There'll be some tough times ahead as you adjust to a radical change of lifestyle, but you've already proven you're a resilient sort of a bloke and I know you'll make the transition very, very capably. James, good luck in whatever you do, mate, in all future ventures. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Been a delight. No, thank you, Johnny. Uh, Mate, I appreciate it and thanks for thinking of me and thanks for giving me your time. James Winks on a podcast produced by Supernova Seven. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.